In his famous book, an allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes about the central character, Christian, and tells us what happens to him after he trusted in Jesus Christ. Christian has just met Jesus, repented of his sin, and now a new man in Christ. Christian is walking along the road. And the first thing that he encounters is a place where the road splits three different directions. One pathway goes to the left, one pathway goes to the right, and the narrowest pathway goes straight up a steep hill, the hill of difficulty. And what John Bunyan was pointing out is a truth about the Christian life, and that is that even after we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we still encounter trials and temptations and difficulties and pain and suffering. And this comes as a surprise to many Christians. A lot of people think, hey, I trusted in Christ, so my life should be so much better now, so I shouldn't be struggling with pain and disappointment. We just learned in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just discovered that those who are in Christ have been set free from sin and death. So what is going on in our lives? I mean, we we face these trials all the time. And most obvious of all, we realize that our very bodies are surrendering to this process of death. And this raises an urgent question for us because we're encountering a passage of Scripture that is meant to be an assurance, a comfort, a security. And we go about our lives and we encounter things that seem to conflict with that comfort and with that assurance and with that security. And this question that is raised for us is this, how can you and I know as believers in Christ, how can we be assured that the chains to sin and death in our lives have been broken, have been shattered? How can we have assurance that we are really set free from the law of sin and death? What is going to assure us of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ in such a way that can overcome the trials and temptations that we experience in this life? How can we find that assurance? It is that question that the Apostle Paul is concerned to answer in the next few verses in our text this morning. And in answer to that concern, he writes, beginning in verse 9, "'You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He goes on and says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through Him who dwells in you. And what's the conclusion of this? So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so, we have in this passage an answer to our question, how can we find assurance that in the face of our trials, in the face of our weakness, and even in the face, yes, of death itself, that we are unchained, that we have been released from sin and death, how can we find this assurance? And it is in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the teaching of the Bible about all true believers, that they are indwelt 
And because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they are alive and will be made alive. And because they will be made alive, they are free from an obligation to sin. So we can divide this into three sections that, I, that will guide us along in this sermon this morning. The Spirit indwells true believers. We'll see that from verse 9. The Spirit gives us resurrection life. We see that from verses 10 and 11. And then the Spirit frees us from the obligation to sin. Very simply, to remember it, three words, indwelt, alive, and free. Indwelt, alive, and free. First of all, indwelt. The Spirit of life is in believers. You see in verse 9 that Paul shifts from speaking about those who are in the flesh to addressing his readers. Do you see it in the Bible? If you have one open, look at it. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He wants to assure his readers that this whole idea of those being in the flesh is simply not true of them because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And you notice what a central theme this is of the Spirit's indwelling us. It's a central theme in this text because it's repeated several times. Look at verse 9, in the Spirit. Again in verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Again in verse 9, have the Spirit Again, this idea of belonging to Christ. Look at verse 10, Christ in you. Look at verse 11, the Spirit dwells in you. Again in verse 11, the Spirit dwells in you. How many times does Paul repeat this idea of the Spirit being in you and you being in the Spirit? Now, the word that's translated indwelt or dwells, look at verse 9, you see in verse 9, and then twice in verse 11. This word has the word home or house in it. It has the idea of the Spirit of God making you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, His dwelling place. Now, our homes are very important to us, aren't they? They're the places that we put pictures, we arrange our furniture, we paint our walls, we hang out in our homes, we like to be in our homes. We like to make our homes our very own. You go to someone's house and you realize by looking at the pictures on the wall, by seeing how the furniture is arranged, by seeing even just the smell of the home, it has the mark of its owners, of the residents in, in the home, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches us, makes believers His dwelling place. Our homes are the places that we call our own. I mean, you know how special your home is to you when you go away for a while and then you come back home, you, you go into your driveway, you open the door, and that smell, right? It's just the smell of home. You know what I'm talking about? It may not even be a good smell, but at least it smells like home. It's your own smell. You like it. It's the place you live. In the same way, the Spirit makes believers His home. He dwells in us. Everything about you and me as believers should have the mark of the Holy Spirit in it because we are His home. It should be personal to the Holy Spirit. He is not just a temporary tenant. He is a primary resident of you as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Spirit has made you His home. He dwells in you, and that's repeated throughout this passage. Now, because the Holy Spirit is such an important topic in this chapter, in the first 
two-thirds of this chapter, really, we, we have to spend some time making sure we understand what it means that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and also eliminating some confusion that so often creeps into our hearts and minds about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I've given you some truths about the Holy Spirit in a couple messages ago. I want to give you a three truths about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we see from this passage and others. First of all, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent condition for believers. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent condition. We saw in the passage previously, in the text that we dealt with last Sunday, that Paul contrasts those who are in the flesh with those who are in the Spirit. But just to be absolutely clear, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not slip in and out of being in the flesh or being in the Spirit. If you are in the Spirit, that is a permanent condition. That is something that will not change. It is not dependent on any feeling whatsoever. It is something that God has made you in Jesus Christ. God's Spirit dwells in you. It doesn't say anything about a spiritual high. It doesn't have it say anything about some sort of spiritual energy. It says, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have God's Spirit dwelling within you. This is what Paul was saying also in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. He said, when you believed in Jesus Christ, you received the seal of the Holy Spirit. It is God's guarantee of your eternal inheritance. That is something that is permanent. It will not change. It will not go away. But we see that it's expressed in a couple different ways. You notice in verse 9, it talks about being in the Spirit. But then, right after that, Paul talks about the Spirit of God being what? In you. So what's going on here? Am I in the Spirit or is the Spirit in me? What is going on is we are seeing our relationship with the Holy Spirit viewed from two different angles. In the one hand, Paul can say that the Spirit is in us. On the other hand, he can say that we are in the Spirit because it is meant to identify such a close and permanent relationship that we have with the Spirit of God. Let me try to illustrate it this way. We, we speak of, of love in this way, right? We could say, I'm in love, but I, well, you could also say, I have love in my heart. Oh, the idea is that I'm in love. I, 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 I love somebody. I love my wife. I'm in love with my wife, and I have love for her in my heart. We could talk about the Spirit being in us and us being in the Spirit, but these have two different emphases. If we say that the Spirit is in us, it emphasizes the Spirit's inner control of our lives. When we say that the Spirit, we are in the Spirit, it emphasizes the new realm that we enjoy. For example, suppose I immigrated to the United States from a foreign country. I left a foreign country, I come to the United States. Now I'm in the USA. I'm subject to the laws of the United States of America. I enjoy the privileges of the United States of America. I'm in America. In the same way as believers, we are in the realm of the Spirit. We enjoy the privileges of the Spirit. We are subject to the laws of the Spirit. We are in the Spirit. But the Spirit is also in us, and that emphasizes the Spirit's inner control of us. Now, some of you are native New Englanders, and some of you native New Englanders, you love New England. And although you have traveled around America and taken different trips, you want to come back to this region of the country, don't you? Why? Because you can take the New Englander out of New England, but you can't take New England out of the New Englander, right? I mean, you can be in the place where people say, bless your heart, but that's not the place where you're going to park your car. 
You can, take, you can take the New Englander out of the place where they speak like that, but you still have that inner control of New England that's just guiding you, right? In a similar way, the Holy Spirit is in believers. The Holy Spirit is to control believers no matter where we are, no matter who we're with, no matter what we're saying, we're under the Spirit's control. So you see that whether we're, we're speaking of being in the Spirit or the Spirit being in us, it's looking at our relationship with the Holy Spirit from two different angles. It describes such a close relationship we have with Him. And this is true of all who believe in Jesus Christ. You are controlled by a new impulse, new desires, new values, new priorities. You have the Holy Spirit within you. In this troubled and dying world, you have the very life of God residing within you. That is what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. And you're subject to His laws. You're subject to your enjoying His privileges. It's a permanent condition, but secondly, it does not mean perfection. The fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that you are a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you will sometimes never behave in a fleshly way. Paul has just given the contrast between being in the flesh and being in the Spirit. Those who are in Jesus Christ are in the Spirit, have the Spirit as a permanent condition, but it doesn't mean that sometimes we will never slip into behaving in a fleshly way. A believer in Christ is not someone who claims to be perfect, but is someone who, who understands himself or herself to be so deeply flawed that nothing else will solve that problem but the sinlessness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is a true believer. A true believer is not someone who denies his or her sin, but someone who realizes that his or her sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for it. We can freely admit our sin. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to build a wall of excuses around it. Why? Because Jesus has already condemned sin for us on the cross. He's already proclaimed the worst possible verdict on our sin, and that is it took the death of the Son of God to atone for it. A believer is a person who could say with the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not just those people of whom I am the foremost. That is what the grace of God does in a person's life, not to puff them up, but to humble them, not to make them deny that they are sinners, but to make them acknowledge that they are sinners. And so to have the Spirit of God does not mean that a, perf a person reaches perfection. A Christian is not someone who is sinless or who thinks he is sinless. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul tells those to whom he is writing that they have the Spirit of God within them. And then yet, a little later on, he says that they are behaving in a fleshly way. How does that happen? They have the Spirit of God within them, and yet they're behaving in a fleshly way. What was going on? Although they had the Spirit of God within them, they were acting as if their bodies belonged to themselves. Although they had the Spirit of God within them, teaching them not to value temporal priorities, they were using human beings like Paul, Apollos, and Peter as pedestals to advance their own selfish interests that's acting in a fleshly way, although they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He said, what about the Apostle Paul himself? Well, when he wrote a letter to the Philippians, do you know what he said about himself? He said, not that I have already arrived per to perfection. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Get this, brothers and sisters in Christ. The mark of a true Christian, that is a person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, is that he or she is continually becoming what God has already declared us to be in Christ. When my children were born, do you know who they looked like? 
Now, of course, I know you have people that look at a newborn infant and say, oh, that is just like your daddy. Or that person looks, that this, this baby looks just like her, her mom. Now, I don't know how they tell that. When I see a newborn baby, I just see a baby. I mean, I think that my kids are the cutest babies in the world, but, but when they were first born, they, they look just like infants, you know? If someone were to look at my, my son when he was born, it's not like they're going to look at him and say, is that really your son? Where is the full head of brown hair? Where is the five o'clock shadow? Where are the rippling muscles? Is that really your son? No, why? Because he is becoming what he already is. He is a work in progress. In a similar way, we are as Christians becoming who God intends us for, for us to be, and that is to be like his son, Jesus Christ. Just because For instance, if my children disobey their father, it doesn't make them any less my children. If my children were to disobey me, I'm not going to say, hey, that makes you 75% my child. No, they're 100% my children, 100% of the time, just as believers in Jesus Christ are 100% indwelt by the Spirit, 100% of the time. Now, that doesn't mean that a believer might occasionally grieve the Holy Spirit. But the fact that a believer can grieve the indwelling Holy Spirit means that that Spirit will spur them on to greater Christ-likeness. And that takes me to the third point about the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit means progress in Christ-likeness. It doesn't mean perfection. It means progress. This is what John was talking about in his first epistle when he said, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are, you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, right this very moment we are God's children. However, it doesn't appear right now what we shall be, but, but we know that when we will see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. But don't think for a moment that this assurance that the Holy Spirit is a permanent condition gives any believer the permission to sin. No, no, that is not what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit spurs us on to greater Christ-likeness. And so, being in the Spirit describes a permanent condition. Being in the Spirit allows us to see sin for what it really is and allows us to see righteousness for what it really is. A person who has the Spirit of God within him has a greater revulsion towards sin, whereas once sin drew him in, sin now repels him. I was speaking to someone this past week, sharing his testimony with me said that the things that he felt attracted to before he was Christ, he now, and he used the word, he now loathes them. My friends, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. If you've been to an airport, you go through security, you notice that the people are, are looking into your baggage through a special camera. I mean, they can see right into your luggage to find out what is safe and what is dangerous. The Holy Spirit gives us new eyes to see in sin what is to be hated and rejected and to see in Christ what is to be loved and adored because He is the fountain of all our delight. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Now, you may say, well, so I, I have trusted in Jesus Christ, and you're telling me that I have the Spirit in my life as a, as a permanent indwelling, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. I still get discouraged. I still sin. I still struggle. It doesn't feel like I'm in a new realm, and it doesn't always, I don't always feel like I'm indwelt by the Spirit. Just like the hymn writer put it, change and decay all around I see. So what's happening here? I thought we were free from condemnation. I thought the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, we do know that according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. We are free from the penalty of sin. 
but we are not yet completely free from the power of sin. But here's what Paul's point is in verses 10. So we're looking at, we've looked at the fact that the Spirit indwells us, indwelt, but secondly, we have the Spirit of life in us overcoming death, bringing us to life. Verse 10 of Romans 8 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So not only does the Spirit indwell us, but the Spirit gives us resurrection life. Residing within our frail and dying bodies is the same mighty Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what it means to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Indwelled by the Holy Spirit means that dwelling within your frail and dying body that's subject to the ravages of sin all around us is the same mighty Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. You notice how Paul develops this. We see, first of all, the need for a resurrection, the need for resurrection life. And what, why is it that you and I need resurrection life? We need resurrection life because of what we read about in our Scripture reading this morning, the mortality of our bodies. That means, simply put, we are all going to die unless Jesus takes us to heaven first. Now, it's not a very encouraging thing to think about this morning. No, nevertheless, it's true. Nevertheless, it is the backdrop against which the need for this resurrection life exists. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The kingdom of God is a, an eternal kingdom. It will never perish. It is forever. And our bodies are not forever bodies. Our condition is not a forever condition. We need resurrection life on a sunny day. If you look at the sun, you'll quickly realize that your eyeballs were not intended to look at the sun very long. The way that your eyes are made were not made to behold such intense light. Now, let's take it a step further. Suppose you were to take a trip to the sun and you try to live there you would quickly realize that your body is not composed in such a way that it can thrive on the sun. Now, in a similar way, our bodies are perishable bodies. The kingdom of God belongs to people who will be imperishable, and that's why Paul says that eventually, for those who have believed in Christ, mortality will put on immortality. We need resurrection life. But what's the basis for this resurrection life? Because we know that the wages of sin is death, and all of us have sinned, and all of us have come short of the glory of God. And according to the Bible, this is the truth of Scripture, whether or not we like to, like to hear it, is that our sin makes us worthy of eternal death. So what will be the basis of our resurrection life? Here it is in Scripture. It says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of what? Because of righteousness. What Paul is saying here is simply this, that it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is the basis for our resurrection life. Because we have been given Christ's righteousness as a free gift by the grace of God because we have Christ's righteousness, not our own. That is why we can have resurrection life. Because of Christ's righteousness. Was this something that we earned? 
No, it wasn't. This is something that we deserve? Not at all. This is something that God gives us by His grace in Jesus Christ. The need for the resurrection is the mortality of our bodies. The basis for this resurrection is the righteousness of Christ. But what now is the power for this resurrection? And we see that it is the spirit of life. The spirit of life. How can we know that the spirit is powerful enough to raise our bodies, to give us immortality. We can know that the Spirit is powerful enough to do that because He's done it before, and He's done it for Jesus Christ. You see, this is Paul's point here in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, okay, well then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If, in fact, as our first point was made, you have God's Spirit dwelling in with you, within you, that Spirit of life is not going to leave you dead just as He did not leave Jesus dead. How can we know that the Spirit is powerful enough to raise our mortal body so that we have eternal resurrection life? It is because He has done it again in history. He has actually brought Jesus Christ to life after everything had been done to kill Him. There was a spear that was thrust through His side. There was grave clothes wrapped around His body. There was a tombstone that was rolled over the whole of that tomb, tomb, but no spear could keep him down, and no grave clothes could keep him wrapped up, and no tombstone could keep him in. The Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ after humans had done everything they could to do to, do to him, and that is the same power that you and I have in our lives. That is the resurrection power. I want you to see this because Paul makes this point also in another letter, and that's in Ephesians. So turn, you're in Romans chapter 8. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. This is an important passage because it comes in the context of Paul's prayer and desire that the people to whom he's writing would know and see the hope to which they are called, the riches of the glory and His inheritance in the saints. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? How powerful is this greatness that we have? Well, it's according to the working of His great might. How did He demonstrate that great might? That He worked in Christ when? when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is resurrection power, and God wants you to know that this same power that raised Jesus from the dead, not just from the dead, but that seated Him in heavenly places where you also, by the way, will be seated if you believe in Jesus Christ, that power dwells within you, and we ought to know that. We ought to be convinced of that. God wants us to understand that, this resurrection power that the Spirit has. You and I have within our bodies the Spirit of life who will give life to our mortal bodies, and that's why Paul writes as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality then when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory so that we can say oh death 
Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? It has been trampled underfoot by the spirit of life that dwells within us. That is the power of the resurrection. And that's what God wants us to understand. We are indwelt by the spirit, and the spirit of life will overcome death. He'll bring us to life. This truth that the spirit of life overcomes death belongs to the future, right? But it also has present implications for us. It does more, it does more than just give us hope for the future. It gives us power for the present because the spirit of life that gives us the future resurrection power in our life that, that Paul is writing about here is also the same powerful spirit that can free us from our obligation to sin. What was it that caused death in the first place? It was sin. What was it that caused this crazy, insane spiral of sin and death? It was our rebellion against God. The same Spirit who one day in the future will defeat death ultimately for us is the same Spirit that can give us the power to overcome our present obligation to engage in that which leads to death, which is sin. That is the whole logic of sanctification, that within you and me as believers, we have the power that overcomes the cause of death, which is sin. That is why Paul writes at the beginning of this chapter that the law of the Spirit of life has set you what? Free in Christ Jesus from what? Free from what? Free from the law of sin and death. And we see an outworking of that here in later on in the chapter when it says that we are debtors but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Not long ago, I got a very official-looking letter from a very official-looking company, telling me that I, it looked like an invoice for an internet domain I had bought. And I came so close to paying that bill to them until I, I seemed to remember, hey, I, I thought I paid that bill to somebody else. And I Googled the name of that official-looking company, and I found out that it was just a scam. They were trying to get my money. You know, I owed something, but not to them. I was a debtor, but not to them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are debtors, but not to the flesh. Yes, we are debtors. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe, but I don't owe anything to sin. I don't owe a minute of my time. I don't owe a dime of my money. I don't owe an ounce of my energy or a tiny bit of concentration to sin whatsoever. Why? Because the Spirit of life has set you free from all that. Brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Suppose you were renting an old run-down apartment, so filthy that the only company you had was the rats. And every week the landlord would come stomping up the stairs to demand your rent money. You ask him, how much this time? The answer came the same every time. Everything you have. Until right out of the blue, someone buys you a new house. A brand new house and moves you out of that rat-infested apartment to a place with marble pillars and soft carpets and fireplaces. You're living there for a couple days when you hear a familiar stomping on the front door. You open the door and it's the old landlord. And he says, give me your rent money. And you say, I am a debtor, but not to you. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes sin comes stomping up at the door of our heart. Tells us that we are in debt to it, that we have to sin, and that there is just no other thing to do but to give in to those temptations. And you know what we can do? We can say, yes, I'm a debtor, but it's not to you. 
I'm a debtor to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been bought by Him, and He has freed me from the law of sin and death. You have no more hold over me. That's the message we could get temptation. And that is the power that the Spirit of God, who will one day raise us from the dead, presently gives us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not in debt to sin. You owe sin absolutely nothing. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lie of temptation that says, well, you just got to give in. It's too powerful. No, no, no. That's not it at all. You are a debtor, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You have been given in your body the, the same power that will free you from ultimate death, from your final foe. That is powerful, right? Okay, if you've been given that power, then surely you can be freed from the power of sin right now. That's what Paul was talking about in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, though our bodies are declining and aging, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. In other words, although we see and feel the ravages of sin all around us, there is something within us that is defying the insane cycle of sin, and that is the Holy Spirit that is making you more like Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who is bringing about in your life the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faith faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. You don't owe sin a dime. You are a debtor. I'm a debtor, but not to the flesh. We can live in the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit will help us overcome temptation and sin in our lives. Now, what's the point of all this? What's the point of the fact that the Spirit indwells us, will raise us, frees us from the obligation to sin? You know, it's, it's more than just to give us resurrection bodies. It's more than just to make us free from sin. Because there are, as Paul tells us in, in Ephesians, there are ages to come. This is only one age and it's going away. But did you realize that there are ages to come? That there are coming ages in which you and I as believers in Christ have a job to do? I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. If you've turned back to Romans 8, I don't know if you've left Ephesians, but Ephesians chapter 2, what I want to point out to you is the whole implication of this, this resurrection power that we have through the Spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's what that is saying. You have a job to do, and I have a job to do, that is bigger than just this present world, and that we have to bring glory to God for the coming ages. And that is why God will raise us from the dead. That is why God will sanctify us, so that He alone can get all the glory. And that's what life is all about, the glory of God. As we looked at earlier, that is what the letter to the Romans is all about, the glory of God. And that is what excites and inspires every true believer in Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Because nothing will bring you greater joy and pleasure and comfort than glorifying God. God has made you and me the sort of creatures to be filled and satisfied and most delighted when we are glorifying God, when we are showing forth the praises of the one who created us. This is the reason that God saves us. This is the reason why God will raise us. This is the reason why the Spirit 
indwells us, will, will give us resurrection life, and frees us from the obligation to sin.